Welcome to the Complete Leader Podcast, giving leaders the tools and information they need to grow and change their world. Now here's your host, Dale Dixon. Welcome to the Complete Leader Podcast, everything you need to become a high-performing leader. I'm your host, Dale Dixon, alongside Ron Price. Ron, so good to see you today. It's great to be with you again, Dale, and I'm looking forward to this very complex conversation that we're going to have. Absolutely. So the um, our topics, uh, what we've been covering for the last several episodes is all about leaders as thinkers. And we have talked about thinking more deeply, um, the natural thinking tendency, skills and creativity. We've gone through logic and emotion, consciousness, conscience, character, and um, spent some time in those specifically. Actually, in the most, and so what we do is rather than spend time this morning right at the very beginning, bringing everybody up to speed, you just have to go back and listen to those podcasts. They are, <laughs> we're very deep in, in on this idea of leaders as thinkers. But f- as far as getting us centered and bringing context around today's conversation, in the most recent episode, as we were talking about this idea of conscience equals uh, the conscious and character, you gave us uh, two specific rules to start with, um, as we talked about Robert Hartman's formal axiology. Let's recap those two rules because today you're going to continue this conversation with rules number three and four. So set the context for us. Yeah, so um, this this conversation that we've been having is all grown out of uh, great interest that I've had in brain science. Uh, most of my work in helping to grow leaders has been more from a psychological point of view, a coaching point of view. But a couple of years ago, I wanted to see whether or not I could see the correlations between neuroscience and psychology in a way that could be creating a new science for us going forward. As part of that, I've been thinking about the difference between what happens inside us subconsciously and what happens consciously. Or as brain scientists sometimes refer to it, they talk about implicit metacognition, which is subconscious thinking, and um, explicit metacognition, which is conscious thinking. So I've been giving this a lot of thought and realizing that a lot of our conscience, our sense of what's right and wrong, comes first from our early childhood experiences and the kind of parenting and influence that we've had. Then later, as we attend school, one of the purposes of a lot of the literature that we read is to build on our understanding of a sense of right and wrong. Robert Hartman was a a philosopher who was also an attorney who had a great interest in higher mathematics as well. And he was trying to develop a way that we could be more structured, that there could be a more reliable way of us continuing to build on our sense of right and wrong in a way that was replicable. So it was more like a science and not so much like a a philosophy or what we would refer to today as a soft science. And he developed this uh, framework that he called formal axiology. And in the last session, we looked at rule number one of formal axiology, which was that a thing is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept. Now, at first consideration, that might sound kind of simple to us. But what Robert Hartman was trying to develop was this idea that the richer the definition you can create for something of what represents a fulfillment of the concept, the more good you can create. So for instance, you can talk about a father and the, the basic 
the fundamental definition of a father is somebody who has children, but then you can take it a little bit further and say, so what makes some fathers better than other fathers? What kind of traits, what kind of behaviors or habits uh, or attitudes make some fathers better than other fathers? And then last of all, you can think about what is it that made my father unique to me and the impact, the influence that he had on me. So this is part of how Robert Hartman's saying that we can develop a richer definition of the concept, a richer uh, view or comprehension of the concept, which creates greater good. And that led us to rule number two, which I just demonstrated, and that is that there are three ways that we can define and enrich an object's concept or an object's goodness. First is what he referred to as the absolute. So somebody's either a father or they're not a father. That's pretty simple. But we do, and we do that all the time. Most of the time we do it without even thinking about it. It's a car or it's a motorcycle, it's a house or it's a tent. We're constantly doing that first level of defining a concept. The second thing is to look at it comparatively. So it's thinking about how do I compare this house to other houses? How do I compare this tent to other tents? And then the third is what is it that makes it unique and especially unique in my perception. So what's the difference between a watercolor that I did in the grade school and a Van Gogh? We might have actually used the same colors. We might have used the same medium, but obviously uh, we could compare it, the two works of art, and we could say that mine was very amateurish and poor and that Van Gogh's was very um, precise and, and had a lot of expertise in it. But you can even take it beyond that you can say there's something about the fact that this is a Van Gogh painting that makes it unique. It goes beyond the ability to compare it. It makes, it stands on its own. It has its own singular uniqueness because it was done by Van Gogh. So really that's um, the first rule that we wanted to talk about today. We then apply that idea that something is good to the extent that it fulfills its concept and that there are three ways of enriching the definition of it, either absolute, comparative, or its uniqueness. Now we say our, our next rule that we re reviewed briefly in the last session is that you can use this way of defining good and pursuing good for an idea or for a thing, an object of, like I mentioned, a car or a house or a tent, or for a person or a being. So you can say that for either an idea, a thing, or a person, that we can first define it in an absolute context, then we can define it comparative to other similar ideas or things or persons, and then we can look for what makes it unique, what makes it one of a kind, whether it's an idea, a thing, or a person. So that's where we're going with this. Now, um, Dale, we're going to get a little bit more complex with it today, and I think this may be one of the most difficult podcasts for anybody to ever listen to. So I really encourage our listeners to listen to it more than once. What I have learned is when I'm introduced to a new concept, the first time it frustrates me. The second time I begin to get it a little bit and maybe I have to listen to it a third or a fourth time and it begins to connect. It begins to stick. And the, the best way I can think of this is as I was learning mathematics in school. Um, first we have to learn to count, then we learn to add, then we learn to subtract, which is sort of a cousin to adding. Then we learn multiplication, which we understand is just a more complex version of adding, because three times three is three plus three plus three. 
but then that takes too long, so we memorize our multiplication tables, and then we get into division, which is sort of the cousin of multiplication. But oh my, then we get into algebra or geometry, or it eventually takes us into the other sciences like chemistry or biology or physics, and it keeps getting more and more complex. And as I went through school, every time I went to that new concept, at first I did not get a thing. But I had to go to class day after day, and eventually it began to stick. And in the same way, these are going to be complex rules that may be difficult to grasp the first time, but I worked at it over and over and over again. And as I began to have that stickiness where I got them, they started to influence my thinking in almost everything that I did. And today, it's almost impossible for me to think about any idea, anything, or any person without using these rules of how do we create good in a, in a systemic and structured way. So um, are we okay so far? I think we're great. I, and just to illustrate that for you, uh, because I've gone through your training on formal axiology and spent some of the time in the classroom and definitely worked through that frustration part. But th these conversations, I still have so much to go and I'm so looking forward to it. But just this concept of understanding good and how to think about it critically has been so help helpful in growing my critical thinking skills uh, over the years uh, since I was introduced to this. And like I said, I still have so far to go, but uh, it, it definitely expands one's critical thinking ability when you start to understand this and push through the frustration level. So thank you for, thank you for that encouragement. Yeah, and I like the phrase critical thinking skills because that is what we're aiming toward. Matter of fact, maybe we'll talk more about that to wrap up this whole series on leaders as thinkers in our next episode. But critical thinking is, in its simplest definition, the ability to suspend judgment and to use more conscious processing in order to get to a better result. It's so interesting that critical thinking is one of the greatest skills that employers are asking for today that they say they're not getting from people coming into the workplace. So this is one way that we develop our critical thinking skills. So I mentioned already that there are now three ways that we can define an object's goodness from absolute to comparative to unique. The next rule, I call this rule three of formal axiology, is that because of this, the absolute is always uh, let me say it a different way. I'm going to go the other direction. The uniqueness always contains within it the comparative definition. And the comparative definition always contains within it the absolute definition. So I can't say, Dale, I, I value you as a unique human being. I value you as somebody who's singularly one of a kind that I've really enjoyed knowing for many years now. Without that including some sense of the comparative without it including some sense of how I compare you with other relationships that I've had, and without that also including the absolute that I see you as a person, not as a thing. And in this particular case, I can be more absolute. I can see that I see you as a, as a man. I see you as a friend. These are absolute statements that I can make. So this, this next rule is that 
the absolute is always contained within the comparative and the comparative is always contained within the uniqueness. So when we recognize a person for their uniqueness, we're automatically also including an awareness of the comparative and an awareness of the absolute about that individual. It may not seem that significant right now, but when we go into the deeper applications of formal axiology, it's a really important rule that helps us to be more structured and more consistent in the way that we develop our opinions, in the way that we develop our judgments about things. And that leads us really to rule number four, which is because of the fact that the absolute is always contained within the comparative, which is always contained within the unique, that means that the unique is the highest form of goodness. And then the comparative is the next highest form of goodness. And then the absolute, we could say it's the least form of goodness, but it's still good. So we would say that the absolute recognition of an idea or the absolute definition of an idea, a thing or a person is good. It's good that we understand that this is a car. You, you know that if you, I have got a lot of grandchildren right now and I'm watching them grow up and I'm realizing that they have to learn these things. They have to learn that that's a car and that's a bicycle. That isn't something that just happens. It's part of the learning process that they go through. So the absolute is good, but the comparative, the ability to look deeper at something and understand its relationship to other things of the same type, whether it's ideas, things, or people, is even better. And to be able to recognize the uniqueness, the singular thing that makes something uh, its own expression, that makes something um, unique and one of a kind is even better still. So one of the interesting ways that we apply this with a little bit of moving from just the addition and subtraction and multiplication and division into the algebra of um, formal axiology is we say an idea is good. The manifestation of that idea is better. The full realization or expression of that idea is best. So we're saying that the absolute is good, but the comparative is better. And so we could say uh, at the same time, another way of saying this is that ideas about a person are good. The actual interaction with a person is better, but the full, uh, the fulfillment of the potential of that relationship is best. Again, these things are, they make sense when I describe them this way. But this is a logic structure that we're learning that we will begin to apply in more and more complex ways as we begin to master it. So this logic structure we've talked about up to this point has been used to better define ethics, but to better define psychology, to better define a person in a job or in a role, to better define the, the self of a person. It's used in literally any kind of attempt to better define what good means. So is how is that tracking or should I read? That's okay. It's very helpful. Very helpful. I, I immediately started thinking about those nesting dolls, but the way you explained it is so much better. Yeah. I, and I think those nesting dolls are a nice visual for it. Yeah, absolutely. So that gives us rule number four. So now rule number five is taking a little different direction. And I think that's where we'll, we'll finish as far as rules. We'll talk a little bit more about how this all relates to conscience and character in a moment. 
But rule number five is that we actually don't always see things as they really are. As a matter of fact, some brain scientists believe that we never see things as they actually are. We see things as our brain interprets them. As I said, I'm listening to a lot of brain scientists. There's a fellow named Jim Hawkins who wrote a book that the title is something like A Thousand Brains. What he has discovered in his research is that the, the prefrontal or the cortex, which is about 70% of the brain, is made up of what he refers to as cortical columns. Each of these cortical columns has about 120,000 neurons in it. So we have a, about 150,000 of these cortical columns inside our brain. And it was often thought that one cortical column did a job and then passed it to the next, sort of like an assembly line. What they've discovered in their research is that every single cortical column creates its own models to understand the world. So we have 150,000 models in our brain to understand any particular thing that happens. It's just mind-boggling. Well, mind-boggling. <laughs> and that what ends up happening is because there are these long-distance connections between all of these cortical columns that are they're sort of their own little intelligence, they actually vote about what they're seeing, about the models they've created. And when the vote is strong enough, then it becomes conscious to us that this is what, now this is all happening without us being aware of it. But when they have voted and they have enough of a consensus, it enters into our consciousness and we become aware that this is our opinion or this is our judgment about some particular thing. So that means that there's a great opportunity that we could actually have a misjudgment. It's actually possible that these 150,000 cortical columns could be developing a bias or a distortion of what they're actually observing. And one of the ways they develop those distortions is by depending on past experience. Past, um, past experience is based on predictions and prediction errors and prediction corrections. So the brain predicts something. If it gets more data that disproves what it believed, then it changes what it believes. But this is happening in 150,000 operating centers. So this is really amazing to me. So this results in what we call bias. Um, one of the ways that I've often described this is that we have a friend who visits us. Her name is Mindy Bortness, and she loves dogs. She takes care of dogs for service members who are deployed overseas, plus she has her own dogs. And one of the expressions of her love for dogs is she gives them names like Doug or Mary, or she gives them very, very human names, not the typical dog names. And um, when Mindy's visiting us, uh, we will be going to dinner, my wife and Mindy and I will be walking to dinner in our neighborhood. And Mindy will go out of the way to interact with every dog that she sees along the way. I've even seen her have conversations with dogs around the other side of the fence. She can't even see them, but she knows they're there because they make some noise. And so she starts talking to them. She just has this positive bias about dogs where every dog is a friend and every dog is friendly and not at all to be feared. In contrast, my wife in a previous home that we lived in out in the country, when my wife would go do her hikes, there were a couple dogs that would come after her and one actually nipped her and broke her skin. So when my wife sees a dog down the street or she knows there's a dog behind the fence, she crosses to the other side of the street. 
Now she has a natural bias that no dog can be trusted until proven otherwise. So these are two people that are both intelligent human beings that have two different perspectives about dogs. That's a great example of bias. So where does bias come from? Well, it, it, bias comes when we have a tendency subconsciously to make something or someone more good than it actually is, or to make someone or something more bad than it actually is. It can also show up where we tend to make something less good than it actually is, or something less bad than it actually is. So in formal axiology, there are four different ways that our subconscious bias, which sometimes also becomes conscious, can influence how we make judgments about ideas, things, or people. We can make something or someone more good than it actually is. We can make something or someone more bad than it actually is. We can make something or someone less good than it actually is, or make something or someone less bad than it actually is. And if you start to listen for this, you will hear this bias everywhere you turn. Um, I, I just recently, yesterday, had a con I, I observed a conversation between two people, and they were saying that they like this kind of music, they don't like this kind of music. Well, there, there was not a rational description of it. It was very emotionally heavy in the way that they were talking about whether they like rap or they like hip hop or they like classical music or whatever it is that they like. And we all have a bias when it comes to something like music. We have some that we like better than others, and it's not based on a mathematical or a scientific evaluation. It's based on the presence of bias, which we could also call emotional conditioning that has impacted us. I, I love, because I was a teenager in the 60s and the early 70s, and, and during the 60s and the 70s, when I was much more engaged in music, I developed this bias for a lot of the music of that time. And today I still go back and listen to that music and I have a better feeling than if I'm listening to the modern music today. That's bias. We all have it. So when we combine this with what we've learned about the rules so far, formal axiology, it shows us how complex things are. Now, there are at least seven more rules but I think this is about as far as we can go on a podcast. I, I think those other seven rules, you really need to be in an environment where you can run exercises and work on them. And one of the things I hope is that I can develop more tools to help people learn all these rules of formal, formal axiology. If for no other reason than because of the profound impact that it's had on me and the way that it's helped me to be much more aware of how to define good in a more structured in a more scientific way and how to be aware of my biases that sometimes get in the way of having a more accurate view of things or better critical thinking. What are some ways or triggers that we could put in place, practices that we could put in place to, I could make myself more aware of my bias so that it doesn't lead me down that emotional path between something's more good, more bad, uh, or less good, less bad than it actually is? I think one of the things that has helped me the most has both in listening to myself, whether I'm thinking or speaking, and in observing other people, I try to identify what part of that conversation is based on objective logic and what part of that conversation is tinged with emotion. So... Um, one of the great ways I see this is 
Uh, I have three boys and a wife who are rapid Green Bay Packer fans. And um, they're always rooting for Green Bay. And every call by an official against Green Bay is automatically suspect. It's, it's automatically potentially a bad call. Now, when the other team that Green Bay is playing is called for uh, some kind of infraction, it is almost always legitimate and justified and not questioned. So that's a great example of how emotion gets in front of logic and it, it becomes a bias that we have. I'm not saying that bias is necessarily bad. The bias that I have for my children and grandchildren causes me to feel a greater level of responsibility toward them. And it's definitely tinged with emotion. So it's not automatically that bias is good or bad. It depends on what it's doing and how it's serving you. So I, if, you can, if you can listen for what is being said that is purely objective and what is being said that represents a strong opinion, a strong, there's some emotional, you, you know, just think about political parties. Think about whatever the controversial topics are this day. One of the, um, in, in one of my presentations on this, one of the pictures I put up on a screen is a picture of Jesus. Because I've discovered that Jesus elicits an emotional response in almost everybody. Now, there are very few people that maybe don't know anything about him or anything about the claims or the history of him. But I found that it's very, very few people that have a neutral bias toward Jesus. So you either really love him and think that he's the manifestation of an invisible God, or you really despise him because of the way you've seen Christians behave. So it's, it's to me, that's one of the great examples of how you can be aware of and grow your awareness of the difference between um, bias and objective truth. So you did mention this, that we would, we would circle back. So it's that circle back time. How does it all relate to conscience and character? Yeah, so let's go back and just uh, review some of the things we said earlier. Conscience is developed. Conscience is not something that we just inherit in our genes. It's something that's developed through early childhood, through the reading that we do in school, through socialization, through what is referred to as wisdom literature, that's why a lot of times the classics are studied is because of the wisdom literature, especially around um, conscience. And then I'm suggesting that Robert Hartman was taking it to the next level by teaching us about formal axiology, which gives us this structured logic framework that's more scientific and not quite as emotionally based. And um, the more we can go deep in our thinking about this, the greater we can develop a sharpness or precision of our conscience. So I'm thinking that conscience is awareness of right and wrong or awareness of good and bad. And character is to choose the right and to reject the wrong in how we think and then how we act. Unfortunately, there are people who are pretty clear in their thinking, but their behaviors don't line up. You've heard the phrase, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Well, that's somebody who's acknowledging that they have conscience, but not character. So character is the acting out of our conscience. And there are two primary ways that we um, develop and express our character. The first is how we govern ourselves. How am I going to control or rule my own life? And the second is how I treat others. So I guess uh, this whole series started with we need to think more deeply. And that's what I'm hoping that we're stimulating for our listeners to be able to go a little bit deeper in the way that they think about thinking. So 
but we can accept conscience just as it's developed through our parents. And I, I will say that from my point of view, the vast majority of Americans, I mean, the vast majority of adults, that's about all the further they develop their conscience. And it's good, but it could be much better. We can go deeper in understanding conscience through re reading wisdom literature, and there's a small percentage of people who do that. And it means that their conscience is even better. It's more good. And then if we think about using a logic structure like formal axiology, we have the potential to go where few have gone before, where we develop this highly precise, highly organized and structured way of developing conscience, which can open up whole new avenues of thinking at a much deeper and more effective level. And then all of this leads to greater character. I think so, because the richer our definition of a, or a concept of a good or something that's bad becomes, the more clarity we have. And then once we have this clarity, if we develop the discipline to maintain a consistent focus around this clarity and to, to act it out in the way that we live our lives, we've developed more character. And with consistent focus, we begin to observe that we're actually becoming more of our potential. We're becoming more of our ideal self as we continue to develop our conscience. So do you have an example of what that looks like when you, when you start to measure and you start to see that progress? Yeah, I have so many examples. Um, let, let, me, let me just pick one of the values that I've defined under how I govern myself. It's personal accountability. And as I've reflected on personal accountability using axiology, and, and going deeper in my thinking, I've come to reflect, reflect on how I learned it in my upbringing, early child. Like I remember being taught not to lie because, of a, because I lied when I was four years old. Um, my reading, I can look at different things I've read that have informed me about that and then formal axiology. So I've, as a result of that, I've come to define personal accountability at seven different levels. And seeing that has given me a much deeper understanding or awareness about personal accountability. I have to say, Dale, it doesn't make me feel more personally accountable. Actually, it makes me feel more flawed. But it gives me a pathway to keep getting better. It keeps, it, if you don't think you're flawed, if you think you've already arrived, then there's nothing to work on. If you see that you still fall short, it gives you a future. It gives you a path of how to continue to grow and how to pursue your greatest potential. So this increased what I would refer to it as, as a, a depth perception. I have, I have a bigger, more, th well, in this case, it's a 7D picture of what personal accountability is as a result of going through this exercise. And it's created a much more interesting and ongoing focus for me to keep growing, which has helped me to see ways to observe and measure my behavior. So every week I look at my seven levels of personal accountability and I ask myself, how did I do this week? How could I do better next week? And I'm never at a lack for something to work on getting better at. So my dad did this intuitively. My dad lived to be just a couple months short of 94. And I could see that he was always thinking about and working on personal accountability, but he didn't do it scientifically. What I'm learning to do, and I'd have to say I'm learning, I can't say that I think I've mastered it, but I'm learning to approach it in a more scientific way because there's a greater richness and, and a greater potential in that. 
So it's a lot to digest, isn't it? That is a lot to digest. This is one of those episodes you're going to go back and listen to a few times. Yeah. And I think each time, I always say it's not what we say that counts. What counts is how you think about what we say. So each time you listen to any of these sessions on thinking deeper, thinking differently, the more that you do that, the more it's going to expand your awareness, your consciousness. And that's the first step to developing a greater conscience and more character. So I think we'll do maybe one more episode on this topic of thinking. And you touched it earlier today. I want us to go a little bit deeper into uh, thinking about what is it that employers are asking for when they say we need more critical thinkers? What exactly do they mean by that? Because it's kind of a buzzword. When you ask them to define it, then they sort of get tongue-tied. It's sort of like they know what they're looking for, but they don't know how to describe it. So we're going to describe it in our next episode. I'm looking forward to that. Ron Price. Price Associates, and this podcast is The Complete Leader. We're going to let folks know you can find so many resources at thecompleteleader.org. All one word, thecompleteleader.org. And there's a subscription opportunity with that website as well to really dive into all of the leadership principles that are outlined in The Complete Leader, the book. And Ron, tell us more about the subscription process. You know, when you subscribe uh, to be a member of the Complete Leader community, first of all, you get access to all the resources that we have around 25 different leadership skills. We have videos, these podcasts, blogs, articles, coaching guides, all kinds of resources around 25 different leadership skills that fall into the categories of leaders as clear thinkers, leaders leading themselves, and leaders leading others. In addition to that, uh, community members are invited to three live events each month. They're live online. One of those is a chat with an author who's written a book that has something to do with leadership or innovation or strategy. One of those live events is a, a conversation with a coach where you can listen to what coaches are thinking about a particular topic. And one of those is a personal leadership um, discussion. Right now, I'm the person leading that. So we pick a topic and we work on it together during that time. So each of those events are an hour long and community members have access to those. We take a little bit of a break in August and December because of scheduling, but altogether you get over 30 live events each year as a member of the Complete Leader community. So we've made it intentionally very inexpensive so that anybody can be a part of it but of course, the real success of it is the extent to which you take advantage of it, the extent to which you engage. Absolutely. Thecompleteleader.org, the website. We would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast. Uh, give it a big thumbs up in your podcast player. If you have not subscribed, please do so. And the best thing you can do is share this episode with someone who has not heard the Complete Leader podcast yet. So we would definitely appreciate that. This is the Complete Leader podcast, everything you need to become a high performing leader. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Complete Leader podcast. Find more online, thecompleteleader.org.